copy, shift box. Okay, radio check. Yeah, radio is working fine. Yeah, copy all personnel. Yeah, copy, mate. The chair in the vet bag. Yeah, stitch her up then. Thanks, mate. Yeah, right, copy that. This is the relaxing one. You can even put your feet up and bloody. Yeah, sounds good. You always, you always do the formal, now the casual. <laughs> right. If anyone didn't hear the uh, part one, the pato, part one pato of which was about Great Boulder and their exciting, exciting visible gold hitter in their RC drill, and head back and have a listen to this one. But if you look, if you want to get to really know Pato on a personal level, you've come to the right place. It's a bit scary. Welcome, Pato. Welcome to part two. Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> you, you, you're still here. You're still here. <laughs> still here. We haven't left the room. No, nah, haven't run away. <laughs> we I, I similar. I'm taking my attempt to look. I won't ever be able to compete with Tim Bamfield. I don't think on finding the front. But this is my first attempt to <laughs> tap into the to the market of giving the great stories of our illustrious MDs thriving in this WA mining sector and where you all came from. So, Pato, that's right. Let's get into it. Five upstanding mining executives. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, let's get in. Tell us a bit about yourself. Well, you can um, do it. You can do a Pulp Fiction style if you want. You can start midway and go back to the start. Yeah. I'm, I'm very flexible with all this. Nah, part. my brain can't deal with that sort of stuff, so I have to start at the beginning. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm a well, we're about far enough. Bit of country boy originally. Grew up in the as a young fella up in the Pilbara on a cattle station. So going through high school, I suppose I always wanted a job that uh, had a bit of an outdoor kind of bent to it. And a mate and I in high school were both going to go up to the School of Mines in Kalgoorlie. And we were both pretty close in kind of, you'd probably be annoyed at me for saying this, close in the academic achievement, although he <laughs> was always a bit ahead of me. And he said, well, I'm going to go and do mining engineering. And I thought, well, bugger it, I'm not going to do the same as him, so I'll do geology. So it was never a real light bulb, light bulb moment. I just kind of fell into it. But it's worked out. Yeah, out of spite in a way. Yeah, yeah. So I do have kind of an engineering brain, and I did an engineering geology degree, so I can call myself an engineer, but I'm actually a geo. <laughs> um, got to Cal in as a 17 year old in 1990, and and I had to fudge my way through the into the pub for about six months till I turned 18. <laughs> oh, because that's the thing with WA. It's a lot of people graduate year 12, and they're still. 17, still 17, yeah. More worse, a youth worse nightmare, pretty much. Well, you don't want to be stuck in Kalgoorlie without access to beer. No. Um, what else did you do? Not much, as it turned out. <laughs> so it took care of first and second year, and, well, all four years, really. Um, yeah, had a had a bloody fat time at uni and, and made a lot of mates who are still in the industry today. I came through, you know, with a few illustrious alumni like Kenny Brinston and, and Dave Flanagan and I was a year ahead of Bill uh, Bill Beamant so you know no no performance anxiety there at all. <laughs> were they and were they all mining doing mining engineering? Where which Yeah. Where were the uh, geos and the mining engineers all together in a way? Yeah. I mean they're all, all on the same campus so we all used to hang out together and party together and Flanagan's a geo, uh Ken and and Bill mining engineers. Um but yeah, I mean, it, it made little difference in terms of being there on campus. We were all in in the same boat, even metallurgists. Although you know, they they mainly hide in the corner, and look at their shoes. <laughs> no, it's good to see the geos getting a, getting. Everyone just tries to get a leg up on the other disciplines. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the, the changes. We interviewed a G, Tom 
Tom Parrott, Jr. take the other work. He was straight into the surveyors. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot about the surveyors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what what was your – everyone had a, seems to have had a role at the School of Mourns. They were running something. Were you – was there some oh, – uh, yeah. I know Shane McClay said he was he, – he was running some – it was, sounded, it was like some brewing facility of some sort. Uh, did you have any claims to fame back in your uni days, mate? Oh, I was probably the resident smartass. <laughs> um, I used to run a regular newsletter supplement that was pretty popular because, you know, back in that day you had to print it all out and photocopy it. There's no email or anything like that. <laughs> so then I'd, I'd sneak up there and stick it in the in the pigeonholes anonymously, and then people would see the newsletter was out, and they'd all come racing in. It was quite rewarding. I enjoyed that. <laughs> hey, give us a bit of context to this newsletter. Oh, it was a long time ago now, but it, you know, basically uh, taking the piss out of lecturers, or it's probably, to be honest, pretty juvenile humour. I don't know if I looked at it now, I'd probably be embarrassed, but it was good fun at the time. <laughs> and were you under a? A pseudonym? Were you running incognito with this, or was it? Oh, you really that is an undergraduate geologist. I, I think it was on a no-name basis, but everybody knew what was going on. <laughs> and where and the writing of this were was it done in more creative um, creative senses in in terms of the your BAC levels at the time to yeah, get a yeah. bit more a uh, bit more humorous content that way. Yeah, not not quite how you would how you would scope out an ASX announcement anyway. <laughs> No jork table one in there. <laughs> yeah, it was good fun. So, I mean, the School of Mines was a was a vast kind of party organisation, and and the failure rates in the first couple of years were horrific because kids had come straight out of high school and go up to Kalgoorlie, and and you know there's no holes barred basically you know, straight into the pub, and um, it did a lot of damage to people's academic careers. But if you could handle both things and study as well. You could sneak through and and eventually find your way into the industry and and so we did by and large. Uh, so I came out of there at the end of '93, got a job in Coolgardie, rattling around, went underground within the first couple of years, worked around the goldfields for a long time, down to Campbellda, Widgie Morpher, Coolgardie, New Celebration. Um, then Li- living in Cal the whole time, were you? Oh, strangely enough, I lived in Coolgardie for a couple of years, well probably about four years in the end. Because we made the mistake of buying a house there, and then of course I couldn't sell it because it was pretty difficult to sell houses in Coolgardie at the time. <laughs> um, yeah, and eventually ended up in a in in a management role in Mount Magnet, and that that kind of led on to other other interests. That's when I started taking kind of more of an interest in, I guess, uh, management and corporate type stuff, and that led to a, a role, a corporate role. In West Perth, so I came straight out of a management role, running underground mining, mine geos, exploration geos, open pits, into an MD role for a new IPO in 2006. Which, in hindsight, was you know bloody stupid, <laughs> but it's uh, I guess they say in life you learn more from your mistakes than from your victories, and I certainly learned a lot from that one. Was that were you approached, or did you did you seek that opportunity? How did that work? I kind of fell in my lap. I was recommended for it by a mate who had also the same age as me. He was an MD of a, of what became Atlas Iron. So David Flanagan, David Flanagan yeah. um, he recommended me for it to the, to the same group of people who were putting this company together. And, and they said, or I think they quoted David as saying, oh, you know, Andrew's like me, except smarter. And uh, I don't maybe, think- Maybe he was referring to the, um, 
he knew you were going to be good at writing announcements with that newsletter experience yeah, from yeah. uni days. Unfortunately, I don't think either of those things was true because I'm, I'm, I'm not like him. He's a born entrepreneurial kind of um, inspirational kind of character and, and I was very much coming from a technical background. I thought, oh, well, if we find some gold, you know, everything else will look after itself. <laughs> but that's not really the way to approach it when you're a new IPO. You have to do the marketing first and the technical stuff second and, you know, go over to Sydney and talking to rooms full of brokers that they just eat you up alive if you don't know what you're doing <laughs> so it was a pretty steep learning curve pretty brutal really was it like imploding at the time under under that much pressure oh uh, we were we were kind of plodding along but i think well, no, but i mean yourself like getting thrown in as you said thrown in something like that uh, you're pretty young yeah you know those being thrown in the deep end is always kind of stressful but you're also you're learning a lot at the same time so it's challenging um yeah it's it's kind of it's a it's a tough way to learn but it does the job i suppose it's probably the quickest way to learn yeah and under immense pressure yeah yeah so that lasted about 18 months till the, the board you know finally took me aside and said this isn't really working out so uh, you know i think that was probably the kindest thing in hindsight i could have lingered on there for another year or so and, and it probably still wouldn't have worked so the interesting thing was from there, strangely enough, ended up working for Flanagan again. That was when I got into Atlas Iron, and that was awesome. So I was back in a technical role in a really strong growth period. The iron ore boom, Atlas was going from a junior company to a, to a mid-tier to you know the next kid on the block in no time flat. Very, very exciting. And I was able to observe the way Flanagan operated as an MD and, and how he did deals specifically and how he dealt with... Um, shareholders and stakeholders and investor relations and the whole thing and and his approach was you know always um under promise and over deliver and people loved it and you know atlas was the the darling back in that era so that was really informative so it kind of gave me i guess a balanced view of what was working with atlas and what hadn't worked with my um experience so that i knew that when i came back into a corporate role that i'd have a, a pretty clear view of, of how to go about it so i was kind of good yeah, and, and it, after listening to, I think, Flano did an interview on finding the front and told his story and what seemed to be the big theme about the whole thing was with Atlas was just the, the resilience and the mentality of the company like backs against the wall trying to tap into a very well-established yeah. iron ore market with the, the majors and it yeah. sounded like a pretty unbelievable organisation to be a part of. Yeah, it was. I don't know if you fit. He might have given you a mention then, because I didn't know. I didn't know you oh, right, then mate. before I listened. So tell you what, if he hasn't, like you're gonna have to eat him up about that. Or <laughs> I'll check that. But he, yeah. he was very the way he talked about people in the organisation was. Yeah, he said it was pretty unbelievable. It was a real eye opener coming out of the gold industry into iron ore. It's completely different. So all the iron ore companies are basically competing against each other. And so there's a real dog-eat-dog dog mentality amongst the companies. You know, you, you can't access this tenement to, to gain, ac gain access to yours, you know. Companies will peg tenure just to block other companies from getting into exploration ground. You know, can't share railways, obviously. That's been a big issue for the last 10, 15 years. So it's completely different. And, and that kind of um, competitive spirit, I suppose, bonded the Atlas team immensely as a tight-knit tight little unit that we were like you said, um, 
backs to the wall and, and fighting through, and, and it was bloody really exciting. Great place to be, actually. And when you said you got to learn a lot about the way you did deals, way Flano did deals and, and everything like that, what were – can you give a bit of context on, I guess, how he operated and what you took from observing the way he was Atlas's MD and the stuff that you've took forward to your own MD journey? Yeah, I guess things – basic things like, you know, not not have all, all your eggs in one basket. So he would always run multiple strategies so that if one of them failed – these were often exploration or development strategies. If one of them failed, there was always two or three backup plans. So from an exploration perspective, that means you know you, you don't just pick one exploration project and, and concentrate entirely on that because if that doesn't turn out, then you're kind of buggered and then you've got to go back to the drawing board and find something else. So if you're a junior explorer, I think the ideal kind of balance is to have about three projects. Um, if you're really lucky, like we are at the moment, one of them turns out to be an absolute cracker and then you can concentrate on that to your heart's content. The other thing with Flanagan was that he was always scrupulously honest and um, and had a really good record of, of delivering on his promises, particularly with Atlas and, and like I said before, under-promise and over-deliver. And, and you know, we would, we would promise 500 million tonnes of resource and we'd deliver a billion. You know, that was that, that's kind of the track record. It was pretty impressive, really. What... Parallels are there between working in a big scale iron ore company and going back to the junior gold explorers? Oh, or are they frankly, two totally different beasts? They really are. There's not even much overlapping in the people. You know, it's um, it's kind of a different world. The good thing about gold, I reckon, is there's a lot of collaboration. So. Neighbours will help neighbours, even if it's, you know, old mate comes over and borrows 50 core trays, and he, he might replace them next, you know, well, they'll replace them next month sort of thing. Or you share data, like in Mekathara, we've shared gravity data and, and geochem data with neighbours just to help build a bigger picture of the geology. Um, that kind of collaboration and friendliness in the gold industry is one of its strengths. It's really awesome, and it helps everybody by sharing knowledge and sharing experience. And data, obviously. Whereas in iron ore, you would never ever do that. Like it's almost a sackable offence because you might be giving someone else a leg up that they'd then use against you. So that's kind of not healthy from a cultural point of view. So um, whilst I really enjoyed my time at Atlas Iron, there's probably no way in hell I'd go back in iron ore in a hurry. Why? Why is it so? But why is that industry just so competitive and so ruthless compared to this? Is it purely because they just need that much? land and dominance to make yeah the iron ore feasible i think it all boils down to infrastructure so you know so bhp and rio are the front runners there and they'd spent billions of dollars building railways so there's no way in hell they're going to let anyone else get a leg up by using what they'd fought so hard to achieve so initially that was fortescue so they were the first front runners there as a junior and they had to build their own railway so you go go out there now south of Port Hedland, there's two two railways running right beside each other for miles and miles and there's kind of a stone's throw apart. It's kind of ludicrous, but it also makes sense because the railway was their key to success. And then the other things are, are port access. The mines are almost secondary. You know, if you've got a port and a railway, you can kind of find iron ore to feed it, but you've got to have the infrastructure first. So obviously that there's no comparison to gold because you know, you might share a plant or toll treat through someone else's plant or, or build your own. There's plenty of options. 
But at the end of the day, the product is a bar of gold and you can stick it in the back of the ute and drive to the mint, naturally, yeah. or put it in a plane and fly to the mint. Um, you don't need a railway and, and a kind of a Panamax vessel to take it to China. So when you finished up, how did you finish up at, at Atlas? Was a part as the the company oh, sort of well, transitioning out or did yeah. you choose to move on? So at the end of 2012, the iron ore price was really starting to tank quite badly. So companies were uh, cutting back on exploration, basically. And, and so Atlas cut their exploration and ResDev's team by about two-thirds. So at that point, they decided they didn't need a, a general manager level. So I was GM. You know, I had two managers underneath me. It was quite a tall management structure. So they cut back to from kind of three managers and, and all the senior GOs and GOs, fieldies and stuff under that. They cut out the GM level, just kept one manager and ran the whole thing much leaner for a couple of years and, and slowly most of those people um, melted away as well. It was just the end of uh, the end of that kind of boom period of iron ore. Um, but that was kind of good because Atlas were getting big and, and a bit bureaucratic by that time. So it, it ended up working in my favour. I got back into gold and uh, ironically went back to Coolgardie for a little while. I was Perth-based but ended up kicking around Coolgardie so I knew that area pretty well. Yeah, it was good. So at the end of that Atlas Atlas time, oh, and actually there was, I did, I did, I think you did tell me a story. Is we're talking about curveball questions when you're in talking to investors. Yeah. Um, and you know, you how you learn how to you know present your information and then maybe divert back to your favourable parts of the story. But <laughs> you did tell me at the RIU a bit of a, a curveball question got thrown by an Atlas investor that just left you completely stumped oh, yeah. regarding dividends. Yeah, yeah. Would yep. you care to elaborate? <laughs> I did find it insightful. Well, we were still basically at exploration development stage and they were looking to build the Pardee operation, but we'd, we'd never sold a tonne of ore, didn't have, even have offtake agreements. And, and I was presenting on the company's behalf at an AMEC conference and um, – and some little old lady popped up and said, that's all very good, but when are you going to pay dividends? And I was, yeah, I was kind of, I was pretty much caught short. I didn't know how to answer that one. I should have just said, well, after we start making a profit, so next question, but I was kind of like, oh, geez, I don't know where to go with this. Did you try <laughs> and justify it in a way? I, I literally sort of shuffled one foot to the other and said, oh, you kind of better ask someone else. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, you'd pay to be there. Yeah, it was, it was pretty awkward. <laughs> <laughs> so consider that your media training, you'd say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so after your, your Atlas tenure, your, the I guess work, working up through the ranks, it sounds like you had a lot of mixed experience between the geology, engineering, the geology, the management, uh, yeah. the MD crack at the IPO, then to Atlas. I guess at the end of the Atlas tenure, so that 2012, where – where were your your corporate ambitions? Were you looking to get get back into the game, and was was M this MD sort of role always on the radar of what you wanted to do? No, I was pretty happy being back in technical management roles, so like exploration management for Focus Minerals for a few years, and then I went out on my own consulting for a while, which strangely enough saw me back at um, New Celebration as as kind of the old grey haired dude and uh, dispensing advice to a team of GOs in their early 20s and they, I think they thought I was older than Moses, <laughs> you know. 
And like one example came up and they found this data out near Coolgardie. Bloody Coolgardie keeps coming back. And uh, and they said, oh, we've, we found these drill holes in the database and they've got all this bloody grade in it and it looks amazing. And I said, oh, yeah, that's the Gala pit. You know, we mined that back in 1998 and there's just stunned silence in the room and they, you know, they were just looking at me like, God, how old is this bastard? <laughs> And the geological god of Coolgardie. Yeah, Sounds yeah. they would have been on their knees just bowing to you, <laughs> bow to your honest. Yeah, no, that was good fun. Um, being a consultant is, is actually pretty stress-free. You know, you can turn up, turn off your laptop at the end of the day and go home and have a beer and not worry about it. So that was good. Yeah. So I guess once mm. – and when did you get back into the corporate side? So 20, 2016, I've got it here. Yeah. Is that when – when it's sort of the the Patterson resurgence, you'd call it. Yeah, I guess it was in hindsight. So, a mate and I got together, and and um, he was in Sydney. He'd been a fund manager, he, a former mining engineer. Uh, so he had some good contacts in Sydney, and a group of people with funding, and another group with uh, with some projects. So he and I formed the management team, and we got the funding and the projects and put them together. Basically recapitalised uh, an existing shell with a group of guys who were happy to, to be kind of backdoored in effect. Um, so like a, a backdoor, a reverse takeover. So um, so that was good. So that gave us some some um, lithium projects, one in Ravensthorpe and a bit of stuff around the Northern Territory. And uh, so we started exploring them and, you know, long story short, they didn't turn out too good, but I guess... Based on my experience of not having all your eggs in one basket, we always had some backup plans and, and um, we did a couple of deals. So firstly, that was the first time I'd done a deal with Scott Wilson. So I rang Scott and we, we did a, a really nice joint venture on a project up in the Briar Basin called Livingston. And, um, and we found a bit of gold up there. So that was quite good. And then we kind of used that as, as a leverage in effect to raise some more money and, and we ended up buying a project in New Guinea on Missamar Island, which is a huge project. It's about three million ounces, quite low grade, but it's enormous and and probably a lot more. And so we over that process, that was, you know, two or three years, we kind of morphed from being an, a junior lithium explorer, which was interesting and we learned a lot, but we didn't find much lithium. Back in 2016, it's kind of like now, everyone wanted lithium. It was a it was a crazy time. That was the first, the first sort of attention yeah. to lithium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was, it was weird because investors didn't know anything about lithium. A lot of companies were still learning about lithium, but there was money just being thrown around left, right, and centre. Anyway, didn't find much lithium. Spent a bit of time around Ravensthorpe and, and Darwin and Alice Springs, and then got this project in in New Guinea and started exploring that. So. Um, Putting a team together, there was a couple of guys on the ground already. They had a house in one of the villages there, setting that up with you know some better communications and uh, infrastructure, electricity, and so on, and um, exploring that. And that that was a really interesting process. Then um, it was yeah, it kind of probably things went a little bit pear shaped in terms of our relationship. Working, working with your best mate in such a close corporate environment is not always a, a good for a friendship. So it got to the point where he was managing director, I was technical director, and it was an exploration project. So I was kind of calling, effectively calling the shots, obviously with his approval, but it wasn't really working on a personal level. So at the end of the day, I thought, well, I can I can sit here being a backseat driver, or I can go out and have a have a good crack on my own. So I decided to do that. So. 
came back to to Perth. I mean, I was still based in Perth, but flying up there kind of every month. Um, came back to Perth, and uh, I saw in, in mining news that that Stephen Murphy had resigned from Great Boulder. So I thought, oh, that I did a bit of googling. Thought that looks like a good little company, and I rang up, and he was still there. And I said, oh, this is a bit weird, but uh, I want your job. I want your job. <laughs> And he was pretty good about it. And he said, yeah, no worries, send your, send your details through and I'll give them to Greg, the chairman. Yeah. So a week or two later, I've, I've wandered along in my best bag of fruit for an interview and Greg was there and, and I knew about Greg and he's a, he's a bit of an icon of the industry and I was a little bit in awe of him and I thought, oh, you know, this bloke might be a bit tough to deal with because he's been around forever, you know. And, uh, and Mel, the company secretary, was there and the other Mel, non-exec director, and uh, anyway, it turned out they're the nicest bunch of people you ever hope to meet in your life. And um, and I remember Mel Layton saying, you know, we think this is a great little company and we love it. And I thought that um, that level of passion is just something you don't see every day. So this sounds like the place I want to be. And yeah, nearly four years later, here I am and it's going bloody brilliantly. And what did they love about it? The, as in just this, was the, the no bullshit, no dickheads policy already in place or was that something you... Pretty much, yeah. Table. Yeah, it was a small, I guess, a small team where everyone felt a lot of um, ownership of, you know, of the business and the, the ideas and, and the direction. And it was, yeah, it was real unusual level of, of kind of enthusiasm. Um, unfortunately, the, when I got my feet under the desk, the projects were getting a bit tired and there was bugger all money in the bank. So it was kind of like, oh, shit, I better do something here. <laughs> So, uh, you know, relationships in this business are pretty important. So I rang my mate, Scott Wilson, that name comes up again. I said, mate, what have you got? And he said, oh, I've got this great little project near Kalgoorlie. You should have a look at it. So this was just before diggers and dealers. So Dan, our exploration manager, and I, we spent about a month before diggers just doing our homework on anything we could find that looked any good. It's another recurring theme. And so when, when we went to Diggers, we had a list of about six people we wanted to talk to, so we were really well organised and, and we absolutely smashed Diggers that year with meetings and stuff, just, just digging up opportunities. And um, and we came back with two deals and they were side by side at Whitehead. So one was with Scott and the other one was with a little company called Mithril Resources that were busy heading to Mexico, so they were getting out of Australia. So we, we came up with came back basically with this gold project that was about 450 square k's which was big enough for people to take it seriously and then I went over east and roadshowed it and um, met another couple of people who've been instrumental in the company's history in in terms of broking relationships that's mainly well Headley Widup over there and he introduced me to Mark Kolopoulos who's been one of the most important figures in our success in the last couple of years or the last three and a half years and uh, and they came in and, and helped us raise the money to get going again and, and then away we went. So it was really good. It was pretty tough. You know, coming into a new job and finding there's not much money left is never a happy time, but at least we, we kind of had a um, had a strategy in place. And was, did you, and you always had it in your head that you wanted that, was the three project number, was that something that you thought, right, I've got to get three projects on the go? Well, yeah, I guess three is kind of an easy number. In fact, at the time, because we still had the old projects and there was about four of them, so we had too many. Um, we had these nickel sulphide or nickel copper projects out in, in the Amana belt 
And uh, the company had made a couple of good discoveries there, but they were marketing them as nickel projects and they were finding more copper than nickel and the, the market wasn't that interested in copper at the time. And so they were getting a bit tired and no one really cared. So I said to the board, well, you know, we can keep drilling these things till the cows come home and find a lot more of the same stuff, but no one really cares. And at the time, gold was really running hot, so a few gold results were worth 10 times what a nickel or copper result was worth. So the gold strategy started paying off immediately and, and we were getting a bit more, I guess, news flow and recognition. Um, ultimately, we ended up spinning those projects out into Cosmo Metals, and the timing was really good because now, obviously, copper being a battery metal is in far, you know, there's a lot more interest in it, and I would say greater demand, but certainly a lot more interest. And so dealing with those projects as, as a copper play with nickel credits is, is a much better strategy, even though it's the same project. So that's going quite well. Is Great Boulder a shareholder of Cosmo still? Or? Yeah. Yeah, so we listed Cosmo a year ago with a 50% um, shareholding, so we own 50% of it, but it's a completely independent company, so I'm a non-exec director on it. But other than that, we, we don't really, um, we don't tell Cosmo what to do. They, they run their own game yeah mm. yeah so and then the i guess the the you call it the flagship asset side well yeah like, that's your flagship yeah, yeah we went over it a bit in the in the part one but yeah it's the journey towards give us the inside how that came into your your yeah. hands yeah well you know talking about recurring themes that was another another conversation so again with COVID locked up here and in, in lockdown, sitting in the office with Dan, what are we going to do? Oh, we well, might as well spend our time looking for new projects. So we scoured the internet and um, mines department website and all that. Um, mines, mines and mineral occurrences layer on the internet, looking for anything that might kind of jump out at us. Uh, really looking for anything, so gold or base metals or, or whatever. And I happened to be talking to Scott Wilson again at that time and he said oh I've got a project in Mekathari you haven't had a look at yet and I was, and I was like oh yeah didn't know about that one so uh, flick it to us and I'll have a look so Scott is always organised he's got a, an IM it's like 50 pages long here you go <laughs> it tells you everything you need to know I thought oh it actually looks quite intriguing I was kind of it was at that level it wasn't like you know bite your hand off to get it kind of thing it was just kind of interesting so we looked at it and I showed it to Greg and he said, yeah, that looks interesting. And then we put it to one side and spent about another month or so looking at other stuff. And then I, I took it back to the board and I said, oh, well, this is kind of still the best thing that I've seen. And Scott offered us a fairly cheap deal to do a joint venture, take an option to do a joint venture on it. So we took a two-year option, paid Scott a bit of money and some shares and uh, started drilling it. And then within that first year, we could see that it had pretty good legs. So, by which I mean they were doing all the geochemistry and geophysics and we could see that it was actually a pretty big system. So, we knew somewhere in that system there was going to be a fair bit of gold. We just had to figure out where the gold was. So, within the first year we converted it, um, exercised the option and converted it to a joint venture. And uh, and kind of, I guess about the end of that first year we really started hitting the, the high grade stuff at Mulga Bill and then, then we were off. So. Yeah, as I said to you before, I'd love to, to say I could see it a mile away, but I could, <laughs> it, at first I could just see that it was interesting and worth the crack, but we didn't know how good it was until we really got stuck in. And here we are. Yeah, here we are. 
So I guess reflecting on, and look, this has been a great moment of reflection for yourself, I'm sure, just to, as yeah, you said, yeah. you're not a podcaster, a frequent podcast guest. You haven't uh, probably sat down and given the full story. So I, I yeah. feel very privileged, mate. So I guess what, I guess some of the, your best, you went to a bit of the stuff you learn off Flannow and everything. Yeah. I guess what are the main things that you're taking from all those years of licking rocks and, and, consulting and travel around managing mines and i guess the big things that you're taking into what the dna that you want great boulder to be yeah i guess a couple of things the first and most obvious one is is just always tell the truth and um as obvious as that might be you know there there are times when it's it's tough to tell the truth if the truth is bad news so as an example we had this project up, uh, this was in the Amana as well, and it was a, a target where we thought there was maybe some disseminated nickel sulphide, so like a Mount Keith-style mineralisation. So we told the shareholders this is what we're going to do, this is kind of the price that we've got in mind, and we're going to drill, I think it was like eight holes, and uh, we'd send the assay data to Scott Halley and he would tell us whether it was any good or not. Like he can tell you whether it's a fertile nickel belt or not, just from from the first few multi-element assays. So it was kind of really binary. It was either going to be good or completely shit. And as as things turned out, it was completely shit. So we put out this announcement and it was pretty brief and we said, look, this was the concept, this is what we did, this was the results and we've relinquished the whole tenement and we're moving on. So we really like took it on the chin. The intriguing part about that story was that the amount of positive feedback we got from shareholders and and just um, colleagues around the industry was like that was a great announcement because it was really bad news and you just put it out there and um, you told it how it was and so people loved that so that was kind of you know that was interesting how how people really um, latched onto that so that's one thing so we always strive to to always tell the truth and and be as honest as we can but. I guess associated with that is managing expectations and that's even harder because as a geo, an exploration geo, you've got to be an optimist. So sometimes you might get good results and you'll stand up there and wave your arms around and say, oh, you know, we, we think this is bloody bigger than Ben Hur. And investors who don't know, you know, maybe don't know the industry, obviously, they take you at face value. If they see someone saying, oh, you know, we're going to find a million ounces, then they'll write down one million ounces. And then if they come back a year later and, and you haven't got a million ounces, then they get pissed off with you. <laughs> and dump all so, the shares. So that's, you know, that's not, it's, it's you, you're kind of telling the truth as you see it, but you're, you're giving perhaps un, unexpectedly giving people unrealistic expectations so, or, or unwittingly. So I have to always try and keep a lid on that because I get excited kind of easily when we when you get good numbers back in the assay results or something like that. Um Managing expectations is always difficult. It's a fine line between saying, you know, if you said at the moment we've got nothing but we think there's a million ounces there, then they'll write down in their notebook nothing. And <laughs> so, you know, people really take things literally. And um, you, you've got to, you've got to, on one hand, illustrate the potential of something, but give people the, the a realistic expectation of how long it's going to take, and that can be quite, quite a difficult line to walk. So, and I, 
you did tell me the other night. I think I was uh, over a couple of beverages. Was asking a bit of, a bit about yourself. Consider that my research for the for the yeah, interview, yeah. mate. I wasn't there by accident. <laughs> you said you just absolutely love it. You live and breathe this. Yeah, honestly, I reckon. You know, for someone like me, I've got always got plenty of ideas about how to do things, and and I've probably given people the shits over the years in subordinate roles. Um, running your own show and and being responsible for what happens and for the success or failure of the company, it's really can be very stressful, but it's really exciting and and rewarding. I can't imagine doing anything else. I bloody love it. Mm. Um, and I I think you know a lot of people in this business feel the same way, and that's why. When you get to something like that conference we were at at Explorers last week, there are so many people in that room who feel the same way. There's just that level of passion and enthusiasm is just unbelievable. It's great. Yeah, like-minded. Oh, yeah. I was a bit different. I said, oh, I just want to be bored out and retire and play golf. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, cheers, to that, mate. Look, and thanks, thanks for sharing the whole the whole journey. And and mm. yeah, look, I, know, I love hearing about the. You know the the authenticity and the the people, the faces behind the the three letter uh, three letter stock code because there's so much more to that yeah, yeah. up and down each day to what makes the organisations tick. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Nah, really appreciate your time, mate. And no, thank you. And thanks, thanks for letting me pop your podcast, Jerry. So <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. oh, you sort of did. You've done the same so ones. Oh, video podcast as well. Yeah, <laughs> no, appreciate. It. And hopefully, hopefully, plenty more to come. And best of. Yeah, it's again. I hope all the uh, the good values get paid back in the upward share price, mate. Yeah, yeah, I think they will. It's you know managing expectations. It's a pretty exciting year. I think we're going to have a good time. Yep. Yeah. Off to a great start. Yeah. Bloody <laughs> oath. Three gold. Happy days. <laughs> good stuff, mate. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks.